All right, Psalm 46 today. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would teach us today from your word. You encourage us uh, with these truths. We ask that your spirit would be at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 46 assures us God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And I realize that many of you may be going through different things. Um, Perhaps uh, some are going through some difficult times. Um, Maybe some are facing surgery. Um, Maybe uh, there's some health issues. Um, Maybe there's a fear of losing loved ones. Uh, The overwhelming circumstances of life, financial crisis or worry. Um, Sometimes uh, when life is good, uh, we, we have a passage of scripture like this and we say, I don't know how to how to make this personal, you know, like. And I'm not facing cancer that I know of at this time. Um, I'm not really undergoing serious trials. Uh, So how do we communicate that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, the need to be still and know that I am God when life seems to be fairly good, and it doesn't really seem like the earth is giving away and falling into the sea? Um, You know, the truth is uh, none of us at this particular juncture probably has a great crisis right now. Uh, even though uh, the world may feel like it is that. Um, Anybody heard of the coronavirus? Um, Of course, uh, there's a lot of fear and anxiety about this in our world today. Uh, And like many today, you know, I've experienced a little anxiety about that. Probably most of the anxiety has to do with, am I, you know, what, how do I make decisions for the church? What do do we do? What's the right thing to do? Um, And so, um, you know, you realize how quickly you can be consumed with worry and with fear. Um, and that can churn through your gut. It can churn through your mind. As you surf the Internet and see the headlines, uh, Noah and I were joking that, you know, when we, when we look at, you know, Google, a lot of times we're, we're looking for sports news. There's, a, there's any sports news. There's no sports, you know. So, so what, do you, what do you look at? The only thing there is is this bad news, right? So, so you, you surf in the internet and you're seeing national emergency, stock market crashing, pandemics, quarantines. And of course, no toilet paper or hand sanitizer to be found anywhere. And these are added to the regular fears, you know, war and rumor of war, global warming. Uh, as a Christian, you know, we're concerned about the sexual, secular 
agenda for the nation, how that's taking root, how it's changing America, uh, worry about the future of religious freedom, the future for our children. And so very quickly, it's e so easy to just be full of fear and worry, isn't it? Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. But I can honestly say that I sometimes struggle to trust when trials or fear seems to be present and pressing and uncomfortable. As a church, we have to figure out how do we respond to this thing. Um, yes, it seems like there's a lot of hype um, about it, and yet there's also a lot of people that are saying, hey, we need to be cautious, we need to be smart about this. And so we have to, we have to respond with both faith and practical care showing love to those who are most vulnerable uh, to this illness at this time. Ultimately, we know that God is not surprised by any of this. He didn't wake up today saying, wow, how did that happen? I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, he knows about it. Um, he knew it happened long before we did. And in fact, I really see that God wants to use this to draw people to himself. I mean, what other purpose could there be? To, but to draw people to Jesus. And, um, and it certainly shows all of us as humans that we're not in control. We're not in control. And uh, every breath that we have, every breath we take is from God. Uh, you don't get to breathe the next second unless God says so, right? And so our world needs to know that, that we are dependent on God and we need to turn to God. Uh, C. John Miller, in his little book, When Crisis Hits, where to turn when life falls apart, writes, I don't think it's possible to go through a crisis in life without feeling that somebody is trying to speak some kind of special message meant for you. When the bottom falls out of your investments or your family or your health, you can't escape the insistent question, what can you really trust in anyway? At such critical times, I have learned that you can either trust in yourself and human supporters or you trust in God. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a famous American philosopher, opted for trusting in himself. In his essay on self-reliance, he said, Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. And he meant that the potential for solving all of your problems lie within yourself. And that's a very attractive idea. We like to be told that we as humans have this great potential that there's no difficulty we cannot overcome if we tap into the resources that we find within ourselves. And certainly there is a germ of truth to that idea. Um, uh, you know, every one of us has qualities that we can draw from uh, when we face a crisis. But is it really true that we have in ourselves the potential for solving all of our problems? When you, um, when, 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 uh, you get a positive test for cancer, can you change it to negative by being positive? Uh, when your wife or husband walks out on you, can you win back your spouse by willpower? When your rebellious teenager becomes alienated from you and you fear serious drug involvement, is it really the, the potential within yourself to, to free that person that you love? When life falls apart, we feel this deep depth of confusion in our being. We discover that life is not under our control, and we do not like it at all. Our emotions may shatter no matter how strong we have been, and instead of being able to find unlimited resources within ourselves, when the doctor says, you have cancer, our minds fill with unanswered or painful questions like, why me? 
Or what did I do to deserve this? Or is there any hope for my future? Or do I even have a future? The illusion that you have within yourself, the potential to cope with any problem, can do more to defeat you at your point of crisis than almost anything else. And so where do we look in the midst of life's challenges? We must learn to put our confidence and trust completely in God. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan has this, this three-point uh, three, uh, outline that I'm borrowing today. And number one is the challenge of confidence. Nothing to fear. God is with us. So in Psalm 46, 1 to 3, I'm not going to read it all to you again, but you can follow along in your Bible. Psalm 46, 1 to 3, it says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. We can't see God, but we do believe and we do trust him, right? Do you? You believe, you trust him, even though you can't see him, right? We know doctrinally that God is spirit, that he is everywhere. We know as Christians, the Holy Spirit of God is inside our spirit. Um, but when we are facing something fearful, it can be hard to trust that because we don't see it uh, with our eyes. Sometimes we are desperate enough to cry out to God because we really have no other alternative. And I think that's why sometimes God puts our back to the wall and puts us in situations that we don't like because he wants us to cry out and say, okay, God, I turn into you. But the, the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm uh, give confident declaration of faith here that God can be trusted as our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. He's our strength when we are weak. He is our refuge when we are under attack. Um, at the men's conference yesterday, uh, one of the guys had a series of illustrations that I thought were really good, but he, he talked about, you know, if you, if you had a, a, this impregnable tower here and you have an enemy that's out to get you, um, and, and you, you, you love this tower, you think this tower is awesome, this tower could even be encrusted with diamonds, and it's awesome, it's beautiful, and you hug this tower, and you kiss this tower. If the enemy's shooting an arrow at you, how confident should you feel if you're outside the tower hugging it? <laughs> Not very, right? What do you have to do? You have to get in the tower. You have to be in Christ. You have to be in the Lord and trusting him. And then you don't have to fear when that arrow comes your way, do you? So this psalm celebrates the praises of him who is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is the God who is abundantly available to help us in tight places. We are very blessed when we realize that our safety and protection is not found in armies. It's not found in governments. It's not found in our riches of our bank account or our 401k. It's found in him alone. Verses 2 to 3 invite us to imagine the absolute worst that could happen to us and yet still put our trust in the Lord even in those times, even if the unthinkable happens, even if the earth gives way, think about that. If the earth gives way, so sinkholes open up and there's earthquakes and the earth cracks and things fall apart and the, the, the mountains fall into the sea, and even if the absolute worst possible thing could happen, and literally it describes what, if that was to happen, it would be like the end of the world, right? Even if the worst thing were to happen, um, what will I do? What will I trust? And if I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I can be confident. The question is, do you and I have the kind of faith that still trusts God even when our world seems to be falling apart underneath our feet? When there's an unexpected tragedy or sickness or, or a loss or death, 
Even if the very foundations of society crumble and kingdoms topple and disintegrate, where do you look to tr for your trust? What do you trust in? Even when the nations of the world are churning with political, economic, and social confusion and war, as Christians, we see our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and around the world today, and some of them are in really tight spots, right? I mean, we see Christians being persecuted. Um, we see them being burned out of their homes, being in prison and killed, marginalized in the Middle East, in Asia, and Africa. And we feel uh, in America sometimes our own religious freedoms being threatened. And so you, you fill in the blank for whatever it is you fear the most. What do you fear the most? And if that thing were to happen, if your personal world was falling apart, then what? The psalmist says, but God. So the, the mountains are falling into the sea, but God. The worst that can happen is no cause for fear if God himself is still with us. Most scholars believe that the backstory to Psalm 46 was probably the miraculous delivery of Jerusalem when it was under siege by the Assyrian commander Sennacherib during the reign of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Sennacherib was this great general. He has Jerusalem surrounded by this massive army. He sends a message to King Hezekiah, and this is what he says. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Uh, he had a false view of who the true God of Israel was because the high places that Hezekiah had removed were actually places of idolatry. So uh, that was a good thing for Israel at this particular time that Hezekiah took that step. Um, he was saying, hey, you need to worship the one true God whose temple is here in Jerusalem. But Sennacherib basically says, hey, your cause is hopeless. You can't trust in Egypt to save you. You can't trust in your God to save you. In a parallel account in 2 Chronicles 32, Sennacherib's boast is even more specific. He says directly to the people of Jerusalem. So he's bypassing Hezekiah at this time. He's saying, I want this message to go to you people of Jerusalem. He says, when Hezekiah says, the Lord your God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people in, peoples in other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or people or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Whoa. And uh, if you were surrounded by an army... Um, you would say, oh, maybe I am in trouble, right? So Sennacherib thinks that the God of Judah is just another one of many false gods that the other nations worship that couldn't deliver them. But he doesn't realize that Hezekiah has been leading his people back to worship the one true God, the creator of all things. And it is never, 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 never a good idea to boast against this God. 
It's never a good idea to challenge this God. It's kind of like pronouncing, hey, the Titanic is unsinkable, and not even God could sink her. Right? That's what they said before its first journey, and it sunk. Sennacherib's boast is set up for God to step in when everything seems hopeless and to bring glory to his name. And so we can look back at stories like this one from the Bible or from church history, and we can see how God has acted in the past. We look forward with hope to the day that Jesus will return again to set all things right, and we believe that he will. But what I struggle with, and probably you struggle with, is what about today? What about this great difficulty or pain that I presently find myself in? Can God be trusted with that? Will God miraculously get me out of this, or will God leave me here for his purposes, purposes that I just can't imagine what they could be right now? And it's true that sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives that we would much rather just avoid. We must trust that they are there for the glory of his purposes, and often for our own growth, and even um, when we can't understand the reasons, God calls us to trust him. Psalm 46 says he is our ever-present help in trouble. So sometimes he sends that miraculous deliverance like he did for Jerusalem against Sennacherib, uh, and we give him glory for that. And sometimes he doesn't pull us out of the fire, but he remains with us in the midst of the fire, helping and sustaining us and teaching us to trust him at a far deeper level than we might naturally choose. C. John Miller tells the story. He says, once I worked for a wealthy businessman named Paul, and he was a president of several successful companies. He believed that optimism and self-confidence was all you needed to succeed in life. He shared his view with me every morning when I came to work. The leading idea was always that your goals could be reached by rejecting all negative thinking and believing that you could accomplish anything in business and life. He would often complete these little training sessions by reminding me, remember, don't be negative. You can do anything you want for the future. I can still remember him standing there. He was already past 65, and his graying hair was thinning, but his figure was trim, his manner vigorous, his self-assurance absolute. He seemed to be his own best advertisement for his philosophy of success in business and ultimately in, in, uh, ultimately in life. A winner all the way. He had successfully pioneered various kinds of innovations and company management styles and had been for years a leading philanthropist. But one day, he had his own personal crisis where his world fell apart. He had neglected to watch certain investments that had supported the foundation I worked for. A large sum of money was lost, probably through the mismanagement of others. But Paul was the man in charge, and he believed that he should have watched these investments more closely. He felt intense self-condemnation and guilt. Soon after, he had a stroke. When he returned to his work after several weeks, our roles were almost reversed. The first time I went to his office to encourage him, he was sitting behind his desk looking old and exhausted. The glint in his blue eyes was gone. His face looked gray. At first, I thought his physical appearance was entirely due to the stroke. The real problem was that he was filled with fears and negative thoughts. It was as if the bottom had fallen out of his life and nothing could help him. Life for him had become unsafe, threatening. To help him, I tried some plain talk. Look, Paul, you need to shift your faith from yourself and your abilities. I believe that it will make a real difference if you put your trust in God and in Christ and not in yourself. He began to ask me questions, something he had never done before. The help he began to receive didn't do uh, 
The help that, that he began to receive didn't have much to do with me. God was beginning to speak to him. And tough-minded and independent as he was, Paul listened to what I said. And from all I could tell, he found relief, release in what I told him. You see, pain leads to peace. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, uh, but he shouts to us in our pain. See, John Miller says this, this is what happens to all of us when we come up against our brick walls and we're left standing there with hurt and despair. God speaks to us at such times in megatons, and a whole new way of life can begin for us. One with wonderful promise for learning things that are beautiful beyond our dreams. If we will listen to him and find purpose and joy in life, even in the toughest of times, that can simply transcend description. It does not mean that there are no more crises or that sorrows or pains disappear like magic. No, you still go through the experiences of life. You may still fear death in the night or keenly regret your divorce, but you do not go it alone any longer. Often our suffering help us to see our key human values have been confused. In our pain, we might sense that we have loved money more than God, and that what really makes us happy, happiest is basking in the glory of our career triumphs. Or we might sense that the highest desires in us have been neglected while we have sought our own comfort. By themselves, suffering doesn't bring you any kind of new confidence in God. The pain of that situation, though, can open you up to listen to God. And, uh, and uh, if it, what you do with it is the next thing. <laughs> you know, do I, do I just ignore what God is saying and go into despair? Or do I come to a new place of trust in God? Number two, the secret of confidence. The Lord is on the throne. Uh, verses 4 to 7. Uh, out of the chaos of verses 1 to 3, suddenly there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The true city of God was Jerusalem. And from way back in Abraham's time in Genesis 14, when it was called Salem, there was a priest or king called Melchizedek who led people in worshiping God there, the Most High God. And, uh, and then when King David took over, uh, he chose Jerusalem as the capital city. For Israel. But Psalm 46 looks further uh, than even the historical or even the modern Jerusalem. It looks forward to the new Jerusalem, I believe, the place that described in Revelation 21 and 22, this great city that's descended from heaven, a place that God has been preparing for his people. No matter how chaotic life on earth might be, God is still on the throne in the present, and no matter how much suffering and turmoil we face now, we can look forward with hope that there is this new Jerusalem, there is this eternity, there is this day coming when Jesus is going to make all things right. There is a healing, a new life to come. There will be a day when the true city of God, the new Jerusalem, will descend and we will be with God if we know Christ and he will be with us. Nations may be in uproar, kingdoms may fall, but in the end we know that the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The historical city of Jerusalem never had a river running through it. Um, Hezekiah did um, build a tunnel, an aqueduct, to bring water into the city so that when they were actually under siege, they actually did have water. So, so it could be a bit of a picture of that. But I think it really points ahead to that new Jerusalem and Revelation where there's the river of the water of life. 
uh, freely available to everyone who has put their trust in Christ. We can receive that water now through faith in Jesus, and in the future we will drink freely from that river. In 2 Kings 19, King Hezekiah goes before the Lord's throne in prayer. He has nowhere else to turn. These armies are surrounding the city. Uh, Sennacherib has made his boasts, and he prays to the one true God who sits enthroned above everything. And he says, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open our eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib that he has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Uh, we often get impatient uh, with God, wondering, when is he going to come through? Uh, but his delays are often for the fulfillment of his promises. We should always remember that the darkest hour of night is right before the dawn. So why do we resist God? Why do, we, why do I resist putting my full confidence in God at times? What makes us as humans so instinctively want to trust ourselves instead of him? Exploring the unpopular concept of sin can help answer these questions. The Bible says that sin is a radical rejection of God's rule over our lives. It's a breaking away from God and the rest of humanity. As such, sin is an act of treason by the created human being against his creator. The Bible explains that God made each of us with unique dignity and freedom in his image. But as his creatures, we are also totally dependent on him for the gift of life and health, our jobs, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the water we drink, the air we breathe. But we express our breaking away from God by acting as though his good gifts were our own possessions. We live for the gifts instead of for the giver. We act as though God was our heavenly bellhop, duty-bound, to come instantly when we call him to meet our needs. Instead of worshiping God and having him as the center of our world, we put ourselves and our desires at the center of our lives. And we expect God to do what we ask, as if we are the Lord. And sin makes us our own worst enemy. It hides from us our true welfare. For without submission to God, our deepest longings will always remain unmet. God designed us to find our security in living under his control and his care. St. Augustine had it right when he prayed to God, You have created us for yourself, and we are restless until we find our rest in you. We believe, we believe that relationships or money or a successful career could satisfy us. When those things fail to satisfy, when they begin to disappear or are threatened, God calmly asks us to question the significance of those things in our lives. The secret of our confidence is remembering that God is in the throne and trusting that he is enough for us. He, he and he alone is the one that we should put our full confidence and trust in. Number three, the vindication of confidence, peace on earth, verses 8 to 11. By the time we get to verse 8, the tumult and cataclysms have ended. Man's day is over. Now the king is seated on the throne in Jerusalem. We are invited to go out and examine his field of victory. 
And it should be clear to most believers that these verses point ahead to that future time of that great tribulation when the earth will be racked by violent disturbances of nature, political upheavals, wars, pestilences, and great distresses. It's a time of judgment from God against those who have rejected and rebelled against him. And at that time, Jesus himself will come visibly and physically with the armies of heaven, and he will crush all opposition, and he will reign as king in righteousness and peace. Now, it is not popular in the world to see God in this way, and yet the scripture doesn't shy away from God's judgment. As difficult as that teaching is, in many ways we should be glad for it. All over the world, people of goodwill with little power and few resources pick away at the edges of evil, while others with enormous wealth and influence either will not or or do not do anything about it. There are great injustices in our world, and many of them are left unresolved. But God, in fact, will do something about it, this psalm tells us. When Jesus returns in victory, he will make wars cease to the ends of the earth. He will shatter the bow and the spear. He will burn the shields with fire or any other modern military equipment as well. To conclude our story from 2 Kings, God sends his reply to Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance through the prophet Isaiah. And a small part of God's reply was this, speaking of Sennacherib. He says, who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. And by your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord. Because you rage against me and your insolences reach my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David my servant. And you know what the Bible says that very night? The Lord sent an angel, the angel of the Lord, into the Assyrian army camp, killed 185,000 men. Boom. And the few that remained, including Sennacherib, withdrew quickly to Assyria, where Sennacherib was murdered. Don't mess with this God. (laughs) Don't mess with him. Even in the chaos, even when the, the world feels like it's falling apart, even when the end comes, God says... Be still, rest, trust, breathe. Be still and know that I am God. I love that. I need to hear that so many times a day. I need to repeat it to myself when the anxiety and the fear grow. Be still and know that he is God. There is no other. There is nothing else that you can cling to. There's nothing else that you can trust that's more secure than God. I will be exalted among the nations, he says. I will be exalted in the earth. There's a day coming when Jesus will return, and the Bible says every knee, every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you already surrendered to him? Is Jesus your king? Is he the one that you're personally trusting in for salvation and for forgiveness and for life? Are you following and obeying him now and allowing him to direct your steps? The Bible's very clear about how to have a personal relationship with God. But there's this difficult first step. It's not an easy one for anyone to take. And it's simply this. You cannot get to know God unless you are first willing to listen to him. Naturally, though, many of us tend to be poor listeners. It takes us a while. Sometimes it takes a lot to get us 
uh, past our preconceived notions of life, past the distractions, to really start listening to God. And God wants you to hear in your heart what he says about himself. Whoever you are and wherever you are, there is this urgent issue. The Bible is his written word, and it tells you that he is both holy and compassionate. He also knows the inmost depths of your motives and longings. And though he's very compassionate, he is holy. He he insists on you becoming honest about yourself. He wants you to admit that, yes, you are a sinner, that your efforts to control your life are a radical defiance of his will. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Because God knows that we are trapped in our own willful ways, he sent his son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for us. Isaiah 53, 6 concludes, And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This is the greatest act of love in all of history. The Son of God became man. He died on a cross to give us eternal life to everyone who will believe. What does believing in God mean? Believing brings us right back to our beginning question of, of, of who we trust in. Do we trust in ourselves or God? We must choose between believing our own powers to deliver us or believing God exclusively. But that takes humility to acknowledge that you are wrong and that you need God. It strips us of our pride and we resist because we want to still be in control of our lives. We want to live for our own glory, not for God's. For everyone, it comes down to this humbling acknowledgement, I have offended God by trying to run my own life without him. Are you ready to believe, to believe that God loves you unconditionally, that he sent his only son to die for you, while you are still bent on living without him? To trust that the Holy Father gave his perfect son to take away all of your condemnation, to give you eternal life. You simply have to receive Jesus by faith and have a life with him. In conclusion, facing the future. Does this new relationship with Christ, if it's new for you or if it's old, it's been a while for you, does, does that mean you're not going to have any more fear about the future or your health or lost investments or family problems? No, those things are still going to come. There's there always going to be a temptation to give in to those fears. But I can learn how to have hope because my confidence is not in myself. It's in Jesus. It's in his power and his strength. He's the one who makes me a victor, not a victim. He makes me a fighter, not a quitter. Certainly, we may struggle with some fears all of our days, and we can admit that 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 feeling is real, but we don't have to be dominated by the feeling. We don't have to let the feeling guide us. We can be guided by the Spirit. We can talk, take our fear to our friend Jesus, and we can ask him to help us with it. As I deepen in honesty with him, his presence in me grows ever stronger. There's nothing sweeter and purer than to know that Christ is in me. And whether my life is long or short, now I can take my deepest fears to him and grow in my confidence in his control over my destiny. I can find my security in him. I can find in his friendship the most important thing in life, the satisfying of my deepest longing to be loved unconditionally by somebody who fully understands me. So open your life to Christ. He will live inside you. Find in him your unlimited resources for coping with even the most overwhelming problems of life, the crises that we all will eventually have to face. 
Put all of your confidence in Christ alone to make you a victor. There's a song by uh, the, the group Love and the, Out- Love and the Outcome entitled He is With Us. And I like the, the chorus of that song. It says, we can trust our God. He knows what he's doing. Though it might hurt now, we won't be ruined. It might seem like there's an ocean in between, but he's holding on to you and me. And he's never going to leave. No, he is with us. He is with us. Always, he is with us. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the confidence that it can give us, even in uncertain times. We pray for your protection over your people. We pray for opportunities to be a witness to the hope that we have. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.